Now, therefore, ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord. And I was assigned to talk about the early church, the first days and weeks and years of the church age, um, to notice just a little bit about how that all came to be and what vibrancy the church had back then and bring that up to our age, to our time. We here are a local body and a part of the large entire church of, the, of Christ. So for a subject like that, naturally we turn to the book of Acts where we've just read, uh, Dave just read the introduction to the book, the first verses, and he read all the way to the key verse of the book of Acts, Acts 1.8. And I think you might agree with me that that's certainly one of the key verses, if not the key verse. And as we think about the church, the church of God, We'll, we'll basically confine ourselves here to the first eight chapters in the book of Acts and just be noticing, well, in our time together here during the sermon, in the next number of minutes or hours or however that happens to be, um, the church of Jesus Christ. In the book of Acts, that word church is mentioned 18 times. And just thinking a little bit about the Church of Christ, 18 times in the book of Acts, and it's a major subject of the New Testament in general, especially the epistles. And let's think together just a little bit about uh, other titles and descriptions that the New Testament gives of the church. And even as I say that, I'm thinking, I'm hoping that you're thinking about some of those descriptions, like the church is a building, it's a temple, it's a body, the church is a bride, it's a family, it's a flock. The church is described as a fold, a sheepfold, you know. And it's at one place it's called the pillar and ground of the, of the truth. That and lots more descriptions and titles. I think it's easy to tell, is it not, from just those few, that the church, is, the church is so precious and important and valuable to God. And I think it's just as easy to say, to, for us to tell that it, if God considers that so precious, that certainly it should be precious to you, and it should be precious to me, it should be precious to every blood-bought child of God, the Church of Christ. When we became a Christian, we became a part of the large, universal Church of Christ. So, the book of Acts, and 
we only will be thinking about a few different themes and concepts, of course. Before that, there's... I would just like to think a little bit about the author of the book of Acts. You know that that is Luke. Luke the physician, Luke the doctor. And I asked the question here at close to the beginning, how do we know that Luke is trustworthy? How do we know that what he wrote is actually right and correct and true? How do we know uh, in all his recounting of places and events and people, how do we know? There have been lots of people, you know, over the years and the centuries that have doubted his ability to say the truth and really know what he was talking about. One of those was Sir William Ramsey, who lived from 1851 to 1939. And I just read this to answer the question, how do we know? I just answer it this one way. Just give the example of Sir William Ramsey. He, and I take, I read from an article by Stan Mitchell that appeared in the Forthright magazine. Sir William Ramsey was an archaeologist and biblical skeptic. He taught at the University of Aberdeen and believed that Bible writers made facts and stories up. The book of Acts, he declared, was full of errors, and to prove his, this contention, he traveled to Asia Minor to demonstrate Luke's unreliability. He understood he could not prove or disprove miracle accounts, but if he could show Luke to be a sloppy historian on facts that could be verified, geographical and historical, he felt he could discredit Luke's unverifiable stories. Ramsey the skeptic returned to Great Britain a believer. Every one of Luke's facts checked out. He found Luke to use specific and accurate terminology that reflected a careful chronicle of events. His conclusion was that Luke was a highly reliable historian, rendering the story of the early church in the book of Acts a remarkably clear one, end of quote. And I ask you, are you surprised that the God of the Word is accurate and that he can see to it that the human authors, like Luke, also is right and accurate? The question that I ask, how do we know that Luke is trustworthy? Well, we trust God because he is trustworthy and then when there's people like William Ramsey, who's a very learned person, much more than any of us here today, if he studies the evidence and comes up with saying that Luke was specific and accurate, how wonderful that is. Before we talk about just a few different passages in the book of Acts, thinking about what made the early church tick. I think that we should probably have a little quiz just to learn what you might know on this subject. 
Uh, but secondly, to sharpen um, our interest and knowledge in God's Word about God's church, and not only to sharpen our interest and knowledge, but our obedience to Him. So you are used to having, you students are used to having quizzes during the week at school, right? So why couldn't we have a little one here at church this Sunday morning? Uh, are you all all right with that? Well, let's just go ahead. When I was in high school, I had a social studies teacher named Myron Dietz, and he liked to give quizzes, and he always had um, 10 questions on his quizzes, and he would prepare quarters of an eight and a half by 11 and hand that out. No paper on this quiz today, not like he did, and I will only have, if it's all right, I'll just have five questions on this quiz. Are you ready? Five questions, and four of them are real easy. They're true and false questions, and one of them is a fill in the blank, and you just do that in your mind and in your heart. Number one, I oh, wonder if we should ask when we're finished then, how many of you got 100%? Number one, true or false, Pentecost in Acts 2 was the very first Pentecost ever recorded. Pentecost in Acts 2. The Pentecost that day was the very first one ever re recorded. Have your answer in your mind. Number two, Pentecost in Acts 2 was the birthday of the Holy Spirit. Pentecost in Acts 2 was the birthday of the Holy Spirit. Number three, Pentecost in Acts 2 was the birthday of the church. Pentecost in Acts 2 was the birthday of the church. That's the first three. You have your answers up here. Number four, the word Catholic has a good, proper connotation. The word Catholic has a good, proper connotation. True or false? Number five, and this is the fill in the blank now, of course. What does the Greek word ekklesia, which is translated church in our Bibles, mean? What does the Greek word ekklesia, which is translated church in our Bibles, from the Greek, what does that word mean? All right. There it is. Those five. Now we're ready to do the grading. Um, number one, Pentecost in Acts 2 was the very first one ever recorded. True or false? False. There had been a number of Pentecosts before, all the, time, all the way back to Leviticus 23 when God um, commanded that feast, and that had, had a, been a holiday and a celebration for the Jewish people for about 1,500 years. The Acts 1, 1 says that when the day of Pentecost was fully come, but this was not the first Pentecost. This was the Pentecost that, that um, fulfilled the types of Pentecost in Old Testament days. It was the fulfillment of God's purpose from way back 1,500 years before. Number two, Pentecost in Acts 2 was the birthday of the Holy Spirit. True or false? False. And I would add, if, it, if it's right to say, very false, right? Um, the, whole, the Holy Spirit... Part of the Godhead, the Trinity, 
eternity past. The Holy Spirit active in Old Testament times and days in many different ways. Um, just look all through the Old Testament. But the ministry of the Holy Spirit was different in Old Testament than it is for in the church age in that before, often uh, the Holy Spirit was present in people's lives um, and came and went. When there was a person that, had a, that God had a special ministry for, then the Holy Spirit would come upon him, the Bible often says in the Old Testament, or in the Old Testament, or the Holy Spirit clothed a certain person for a certain work. And then it often came and went, and I think David was the only one in Old Testament times of which it's said that the Holy Spirit came on him and stayed there. You might want to just double-check me on that. But now in New Testament times, in the church age in which we're living, the Holy Spirit indwells, which is much better than just coming upon him. Thank God for the person and work of the Holy Spirit in our lives individually and as a church. So the first two are false. How about number three? Pentecost in Acts 2 was the birthday of the church. True. Good. Yep. There was not a church of Christ in Old Testament days. The nation of Israel was a type and a picture and of that. But let's be sure that we realize and understand that Israel is different and separate from the church. God has a special plan and purpose for Israel and for the church. Uh, remember somewhere in the Bible, I think in 1 Corinthians, it says, Give none offense, neither to the Jew, nor to the Gentile, nor to the church of God. There's three types of people in the world, unsaved and church and Israel. Oh, number four, Catholic. The word Catholic has a good proper connotation. True or false? That's true. What does Catholic mean? Universal or worldwide. And certainly the church of Jesus Christ is universal. It's worldwide. We're used to having a kind of a negative connotation from that word, but it's a wonderful word for a wonderful church. God, it's, yes, universal. It's for all people. Universal. See, Jesus said, I... And I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men unto myself. Number five, and this is the fill in the blank. What does the Greek word ekklesia, which is translated church in our Bibles, mean? What does ekklesia mean? Marlon, what did you say? Gathering? Who said that? Yes, called out. It means called out, the called out ones. And I think we can understand that, can't we? The, the picture of a whole sea of human people, of humans. Everyone is here in this group. Uh, it's, the, uh, we're out, it's the kingdom of Satan. It's outside of the will of God, ungodly, uh, without God, yeah, without Christ in the world. And God calls out these people to come into the kingdom of God. And who does he call out? He calls out everyone, right? Didn't Jesus say, and I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men unto myself. God calls everyone, but the people in the church are the ones that 
respond to that calling out that God so faithfully does in each of our lives. How did you do on the quiz? Anybody want to say? Good. Uh, Let's keep moving. I'm thinking now of different themes. I've picked out five verses or passages in the first eight chapters of the book of Acts, and let's just look at those together. The first one, of course, uh, is Acts 1.8, the key verse in the book of Acts, Ye shall re- and the theme there certainly is power for witness, right? That's easy. We understand that. Thank God for the power that he gives through the Holy Spirit for witness, And I don't think I ever thought of it, you probably have, that these were the last words of Jesus before his ascension. These were the last words that Jesus uttered before he ascended to heaven, before he left planet Earth to go to heaven. Not just the last recorded words, but look at verse 9. I think verse 9 in chapter 1 makes it real clear that these were the last words, famous last words. Not that Jesus is dead, certainly not. He's alive and forevermore. These were the last words that he said. I think that um, that's just pretty interesting. And not, not only interesting, but um, it should give us a good picture of the heartbeat of Jesus. Acts 1.8. Let's just look at the what and the where in that verse a little bit. Do you see the what? What is it? Um, ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall, be, ye shall be what? Ye shall be witnesses. The word is witnesses. The what is, what is a, yes, what is a witness? So the, word, the what in this verse is witness. And now I ask, what is a witness? And maybe you're thinking along like I did, Uh, with the help of John Phillips, that witness, a witness is often used, it's a legal term. And are you thinking about a witness in a courtroom setting? You shall be witnesses. What is a witness in the courtroom? Um, There are lots of people in a typical courtroom. There's the prosecuting attorney and the defense attorney, and there is the pool of juries, of folks in the jury, and there's a judge, but the the witnesses are often there too, but the witness is not an attorney, not a judge, not part of the jury. A witness often isn't really highly trained like the attorneys and the judges are, and they're not highly learned, and often a witness, a witness to be effective in a courtroom does not need to be well-versed in legal intricacies and that kind of thing. A witness simply tells what he has seen and heard, right? Ye shall be witnesses unto me, Jesus says. The what is that we are witnesses. And as I think of that and... I am just wondering and th- what 
Jesus up there thinks of me as a witness. How an effective witness am I? How accurate in what I say? How accurate am I in what I have seen and heard? And how courageous am I in what I have seen and heard? I think I have quite a lot to grow of space to grow in that of being a witness for Jesus Christ. We shall be wit ye shall be witnesses, Jesus says. And then there's the where. And it's a fourfold where, right? Where shall we be witnesses? Well, Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. And again, John Phillips was really helpful in my thoughts. As, and I adapted just a little bit, but the Jerusalem, where is your Jerusalem? It's where you live. It's your community, right? Our Jerusalem is Lancaster County, our community. Where is our Judea? Well, that would be our country, our nation. And where is our Samaria? Mr. Phillips would suggest that was our continent. And then, of course, there's the uttermost parts of the world. That would be all cultures, all peoples. So we are to be witnesses where? In our own community, in our own nation, in our own continent, and beyond that, to all cultures throughout this wide world, throughout the globe. I thought it, it's... So we here are living here. We mostly are witnesses in our own, in Jerusalem, our own community. But we have, as a church, in the last two months or so, sent out two brothers that I'm thinking of, uh, Tony Stolzfus and Josh Esch. And Tony went from Jerusalem, and he went from Judea, from his community and from his country. Well, yes, he went... He left his own community and his own country, and as such, as in, I guess he's still in the continent of North America, isn't he, Belize? Josh left his community, and he's still in his Samaria. The where and the what of Acts 1.8. I am so grateful that God doesn't only say what we are supposed to do and where we are to do it, but he gives the strength and the power and everything that we need to fulfill that command. Thank God for the power that he gives through the Holy Ghost. But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the world, of the earth, excuse me. Let's think now, going on, and think about Acts 2, the day of Pentecost. And we could go in quite a lot of different directions here. Let's just think, talk about a couple concepts, a few themes that seem to come out strongly on the events and the preaching on the day of Pentecost. About the 1500th day of Pentecost, right? Well, there was, there was three supernatural phenomena that appeared that day. You see it, one of them is verse 2, one of them is 
mentioned in verse 3 and one of them in, in verse 4. The wind and the fire were not repeated in Acts again, or maybe not since, anytime, anywhere. Tongues were mentioned two more times in the book of Acts. And it's pretty clear that tongues are especially assigned to unbelievers and assigned to Israel. Without going into lots of detail here and, um, and proving that point in the scripture, although we probably could. The, the tongues are, mentioned, are especially for the weak in faith, for the unbelievers and for the nation of Israel. And I think it's very right to say that it's not, it's not a sign that one is super spiritual or that he's saved or anything like that. Going on to verse 41 in chapter 2, the day of, on the day of Pentecost, and it's implied in that verse that of the supremacy of preaching in God's program. These apostles were preaching, and we are treated to having um, Peter's sermon recorded. The others also, I think, were speaking in tongues, and we don't know or that. The Bible was... It's not what they said, and their sermons were not included in Scripture, of course. But the supremacy of preaching... God's plan primarily for the church, um, primarily in being a witness, certainly not only in being a witness in these four areas of the world, certainly not, but there's something special that God has in, for preaching. How do I know that? Well, turn with me to 1 Corinthians and... We're leaving the book of Acts just for a little bit here. 1 Corinthians 1, there's two verses. Paul is discussing that subject in, in 1 Corinthians 1. And in verse 18, he says, and I hear that uh, page is still uh, shuffling, but you're getting there. 1 Corinthians 1, for the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. Verse 21, for after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God, it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. Oh, there's lots of other ways of being a witness, good ways. But there's something about preaching... Um, even in the 21st century, even in 2022, God has not changed his mind from the day that 1 Corinthians 1 was written. Something special in God's sight, so it should be in our sight as well, about, about communicating the truth of the gospel and the truth of the church through preaching. I'm ready now to go to verse 42. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. Here's a concept or a theme of steadfastness. And someone has said that 
the apostles' doctrine. What is that? What, do, what does that mean? They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Someone has said that speaks of truth. That is truth. The apostles' doctrine is truth. And I think it's significant that it's mentioned first. Truth. That is the basis. That is the foundation. The truth of God. And I thought it was neat that I just happened to notice in the foot, there was a footnote in my Bible, not inspired by God now, the footnote, um, but some man had written about the Apostles' Doctrine, and I quote, The Apostles' Doctrine was true, not because an Apostle taught it, but because it was consistent with the Scriptures. I kind of hope we get that point. The, the apostles' doctrine was true, not because an apostle taught it, but because it was consistent with the scriptures. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, truth, and fellowship. Fellowship. And it's been said that we could, if the apostles' doctrine is a T, truth, what would be the T that we use here? And someone suggested a tie, which made me think of the song that we often think, sing. Blessed be the tie that binds our hearts in Christian love. The fellowship of kindred minds is like to that above. Certainly the tie of fellowship that we experience here and Christians experience one with another throughout this wide world is a wonderful tie that ties us together in the truth of God. The third thing that was happening back then was in breaking of bread in verse 42. I kind of think that that means communion because ordinary meals could be included in the fellowship part in the number two. Um, so, communion, remembering the shed blood and the broken body of Christ, the breaking of bread. And then, of course, prayers. That would be the throne. Oh, the breaking of bread would be the table, and prayers ascend to the throne of God. Just a quick little, a few quick little thoughts about that. Certainly, that must have been a wonderful time. Those new early Christians in the newly formed church, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. And isn't it wonderful that here 2,000 years later, we here at this church can experience and often do experience those same four wonderful thoughts. I'm looking now at verse 47, the very last verse in Acts 2, the last thing that the Holy Spirit says about that day of Pentecost, that special red, day, red letter day in God's eyes. And I notice especially two words in verse 47 that stood out to me. One of them is a noun, and one of them is a verb. And the noun that I'm thinking of is the word 
church. The Lord added to the church. This is the first mention of church in the book of Acts. The first of 18 times. And ecclesia, the called out ones. And the Lord added to the called out ones daily such as should be saved. The called out ones who responded in faith. The call, all of us are called out. Oh, that all of us also respond in faith and are added to the church, the Catholic Church of Christ. The noun that I'm, or the verb that I'm thinking of is the word added. The Lord added to the church. And I read from Exploring Acts by John Phillips. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. This is the only one anyone can be added to the church. The Lord adds to its members those he saves. The church does not grow by adding to its rules the names of baptized infants. It does not grow by high-pressure evangelism and doubtful professions of faith. It grows as the Lord adds saved people to its numbers. The Lord added daily, says Luke. He has been adding to it daily ever since, sometimes by the thousands, sometimes a few here, a few there. Now a child at mother's knee, now an old man dying in his bed. He will go on doing that, adding and adding until the rapture. The Lord added to the church, to the ecclesia, daily such as should be saved. And we do thank God that he is still doing that today. So we've talked a little bit about Acts 1.8. We've talked uh, some more about Acts 2. Let's think now about Acts 6, 5 through 7. So Acts 1, 8 had to do with the power for witness. And Acts 2, could we capsulize and say that that was that these empowered witnesses provide testimony of Redemption and salvation in Christ. Acts 6, 5 through 7. And what stood out to me there is that God provides godly leadership. So there was a need, and the apostles, who were the leaders, responded and said that, well... We need more leaders. Well, that's saying it in my words. We need people who can serve tables. And I think it's neat that look in verse 3 and again in verse 5 that the church, not, not just the leaders, but the church, were, was tasked with participating in the selection. And the result, the word is pleased in verse 5. I think the church was pleased in all the right ways and for all the right reasons. I think that yet today, when competent, godly leadership is in place, there's a better chance for numerical growth, and there's certainly a better chance for spiritual growth to happen. That's just a basic concept that I think is shining through there in Acts 6. For me personally, well, I sure thank God for 
um, leaders in the past uh, from whom I learned so much and whom I owe so much. I'm thinking about people like Elam Kaufman and Gid Stolzfus and John Ulap and Aaron Lapp and Chris Beiler and people like that. And if you're a lot older than me, maybe you're thinking of John A. Stolzfus and Aaron Stolzfus and people like that. As I think of all that and notice that in Act 6, I certainly thank God for the pastors that I serve with today too. It's a great blessing and I appreciate each and every one of them. I think that one of the points for this point is that you folks should do your leaders a big favor by continually being Bereans. You know about the Bereans, Acts 17, 11? If you don't, you can turn there real quick, like, and just notice that the, the Bereans were good at two things. Number one, they were good at um, just taking in everything that was said. And number two, going to the Bible to see if it was right, if it was true. Every faithful church leader yet today um, needs to be surrounded by Bereans. So you keep doing that. And every faithful church leader today thrives on being surrounded by Bereans. I'm thinking now about Acts 8, um, verses 1 and 4. Acts 8, verses 1 and 4. Do you see those um, not tremendously encouraging words in verse 1, a great persecution? Verse 4, they were scattered. One of the themes throughout the book of Acts is that there was persecution against the church, against the ecclesia, against the called out ones. We think of Stephen who was martyred for his faith. We think of Paul who had all kinds of opposition, all kinds. But there were lots of others too. Um, Lots of others. Uh, People were imprisoned. They were beaten. They were stoned. There was murder plots against them and actual murders and executions. How discouraging is all that? for us sitting here comfortably today. The interesting thing, and the um, the interesting thing is that, uh, turn to Acts 5, verse 41. Not only interesting, but a great, I, 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 did you notice I'm struggling a bit? Uh, ver, let's look at the verse. Acts 5.41, And they departed, that's the apostles, from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. So God allows suffering, and God allows opposition, and God allows persecution, but with that he brings joy. You know, we here don't know an awful lot about that. For over 300 years now, Anabaptists have been here in America. And America has been a beacon of religious freedom. 
We are so blessed. We are just so blessed. And we are so used to the freedom of religion and the easy life that we have here that we almost subconsciously consider it our right, do we not? Or am I the only person like that? I just talked to a brother yesterday at a funeral who was something of a historian, and he said that William Penn, back in the early 1700s, actively sought Anabaptists to come over to Penn's Woods, the, this big tract of land that he had, that he owned in the New World. He, that William Penn actively sought our people to come. And here we are, a good 300 years later, still living in Penn's Woods in Pennsylvania, and the Lord has still largely granted us wonderful freedom of religion and acceptance and exemption from persecution. And then after that, I have a couple questions to ask. Number, one question is, how long can this last? Number two, does it seem to you as if Christian-hating storm clouds are gathering on the horizon? Number three, if so, are we ready for that? Number four, hopefully we can answer this together. If something like that happens, will God be able to see us through? Yes, amen, God will see us through. This is not something to be fearful of, but maybe um, if something like persecution would come to this land, to us or to our offspring, maybe we would sense at that point that we've been missing out on joy. All right, well, let's go now. Notice we've been going through these first eight chapters, just picking out a little here and picking out a little there. Let's go back now to Acts 1 and look at verses 9 through 11 just a little bit. And you're heading there, you're getting there, and you're reading that. Jesus has ascended... And the angel says, two angels says that this same Jesus, verse 11, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. He's, let's not give up. Don't give up the fight. Jesus is coming again. He's coming bodily, and he's coming personally, and he's coming literally. Let's not give up. Even if there's persecution and opposition and all kinds of suffering of various kinds, let's not give up because Jesus is coming again. And when he does, when he comes back, every true member of the ecclesia, every true member of the Church of Christ that isn't already there will be caught up to heaven itself. That's the term that Paul uses in 1 Thessalonians 4.17, caught up, caught up. So our Christian pilgrimage here on earth begins by being called out, right? When we, when we accept that called out invitation and plea that the Holy Spirit 
gives and brings to us, when we accept that, we are called out, and that's the beginning of our Christian pilgrimage here. And our Christian pilgrimage ends when we're caught up. Maybe we're, we'll be caught up by death. Maybe we'll be caught up at the, resurrection, uh, at the rapture when Jesus returns for his own. So we begin by being called out, and then our real beginning begins when we are caught up. We are caught up to that better land, the land of our dreams, heaven itself, to be forever in the presence of God. Let's see, I haven't given the title yet, have I? This time the title comes at the end of the sermon instead of at the beginning. And the title is just what we've been talking about. Called out, caught up. Called out, called up. And we pray together, do we not? Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Will you kneel with me for prayer? Our Heavenly Father, our prayer is today, even so come, Lord Jesus. Thank you that you have called us out of darkness and into your marvelous light. That's the beginning of our Christian walk, but it's not the end by any means. Yeah, our lives are a lot like the apostles and the ecclesia, the called out ones in the book of Acts, in that there's all kinds of struggles and opposition and persecution we face that too, Heavenly Father, maybe not to the degree that they did, and yet we all have battles that we're, that we're waging, but we thank you for the, your Holy Spirit and for the power and strength of the Holy Spirit. Um, there hasn't one temptation come upon us, but that is common to man, and that God is able to bring us through, according to your word, how we thank you for that. And we have experienced that. But we thank you especially for the hope of heaven and the fact that one of these days you'll be calling all your loved ones home. We'll all be caught up together. All of the called out ones will be caught up to be with the Lord. So shall we ever be with the Lord. And we pray, even so come, Lord Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.